So let's take our Bibles. Let's turn over to Matthew 24 and verse 15 this morning. Matthew 24 and verse 15. And I'm going to read the verse before I provide us with the introduction. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In Matthew 24 to 25, Jesus presents his disciples with a sermon about the end times. The content of this sermon is prophetical. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Since prophecy is part of scripture, we as believers must study it to be adequately equipped for service. Now before presenting this sermon, Jesus says in Matthew 24 verse 4, See to it that no one misleads you. According to a literal hermeneutic, studying biblical prophecy will prevent genuine believers from being led into error and it will also arm us against cults and false teachers. I think it's interesting that so many people, Christians, are deceived and led into cults because of their misunderstanding of biblical prophecies. Studying prophecy, studying biblical prophecy, biblically, is purifying. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? Now in the context, Peter had just covered the day of the Lord, the day of God, and the day of judgment. And knowing these prophecies about the future should purify us. It should drive us to holy conduct. It should drive us into godliness. Now the sermon as recorded by Matthew here in 24 and 25 answers the disciples' questions regarding the signs of Christ's coming and the end of this present age. As a reminder, this sermon mentions nothing about the rapture of the church. You can look from the beginning of chapter 24 to the end of chapter 25, you will find no mention of the rapture. It's just not there. You need to keep in mind that when Jesus preaches this sermon, the church has yet to be born. It's some six weeks away, to, to, to about a month and a half before the Holy Spirit descends and births the church. Biblically, the first mention of the rapture of the church, recorded mention, occurs in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is written in A.D. 50, many years after A.D. 29. We need to understand that this prophecy is about Israel's future. 
And Israel's future prophecy is built upon Daniel 9. There in Daniel 9, it is revealed by Yahweh that he has a 490-year plan for Israel. That period, that plan began with Artaxerxes' decree to return and rebuild Jerusalem in 457 B.C. In A.D. 26, 483 years later, the Messiah was revealed as prophesied. Following his revelation, the prophecy says, foretells that the Messiah would die, Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Those two events happened in A.D. 29 and A.D. 70. Only seven years are left to fulfill Yahweh's plan for Israel. And those seven years are known as the tribulation. And the tribulation is the focus of Matthew 24, verse 4 through 28. Now in Luke 21, which is the corollary text to Matthew 24 and 25, Luke records this same sermon. In verse 24, it mentions the times of the Gentiles. Now the times of the Gentiles is a period in which Gentiles would control Jerusalem. That period, the times of the Gentiles, began in 606 B.C. when Israel, Judah, was carried off into captivity. It continues in this present day. And the times of the Gentile will only conclude when Christ returns after the tribulation. The book of Daniel provides an overview of Gentile history. Now, I'm sure some of you have read Daniel. Some of you may have read parts of Daniel. I'm sure everybody has heard about Daniel and the lion's den. I'm sure everybody's heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the fiery furnace and the uh, fourth man in the furnace. Which happened to be the God-man, the Son of God. But I don't know how many have actually taken the time to read through the book of Daniel. We're not going to read through the whole book of Daniel here this morning. But Matthew 24 verse 15 tells us that when we see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. We cannot understand properly, correctly, rightly, Daniel 24 verse 15, without understanding the prophecies of the book of Daniel. And so I want to take a moment this morning and we're going to work our way through Daniel. We're going to turn over there and we're going to start in Daniel chapter 2. Now again, I'm not reading the whole book of Daniel, but I'm going to read through specific texts that affect our interpretation of Daniel 24 and verse 15. We'll begin in Daniel chapter 2, verses 32 to 35. To set the context there, you'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He's upset by the dream, but he cannot remember the dream. And obviously he does not know what it means. And so after exploring all of his options, he ends up meeting Daniel, who can not only tell him what the dream is, but because God has revealed it to him, he can tell Nebuchadnezzar what it means. We call this the dream of the penta metal man. Penta, P-E-N-T-A, means five. The pentametal man. Daniel says in verse 32, The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, 
and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time because, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now the pentamental man reveals the course of Gentile empires from humanity's viewpoint. That's an overview of the Gentile empires from humanity's standpoint. Let's move to Daniel chapter 7. Turn over to Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. Here we have Daniel's vision of the four great beasts. Daniel's vision of the four great beasts. Beginning in verse 2 of Daniel 7, Daniel says, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. Three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and they, thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking. And behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. The vision of the four great beasts in Daniel 7 shows the course of Gentile empires from God's viewpoint. So the pentametal man, humanity's viewpoint. The four great beasts, God's viewpoint. Now let's go to Daniel 8. Daniel 8, verses 3 to 12. You're saying, Pastor, that's great, we're reading these, but what do they mean? Listen, we're going to read through them. I'm going to merge them together and explain what they mean. Because let the reader understand, Matthew says. We must understand these prophecies in order to interpret Matthew 24 biblically. Daniel 8 verse 3 says, this is the vision, Daniel's vision of the two-horned ram and the male goat. The two-horned ram and the male goat. Verse 3. Behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one longer than the other. The longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward. No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. 
He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at the ram, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. One of them came forth, or out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was torn down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. The vision of the two-horned ram and the male goat shows the place of Israel the beautiful land, in the course of the Gentile empires. So we now have Israel's place in the course of the Gentile empires. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 9. The prophecy of Daniel 9, this is Gabriel's revelation to Daniel of the 70 weeks. Gabriel's revelation of the 70 weeks. Gabriel reveals in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern, understand, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, and he... That's the prince. Will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete desolation, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The revelation of the 70 weeks foretells God's plan to end Gentile oppression. The Gentile empires will come to an end. One more prophecy, and that's in Daniel 11. Daniel 11. We're going to begin in verse 24. Now, beginning in Daniel 11, all the way through chapter 12 is one long prophecy. We're not going to overview the entire prophecy. Our focus is on the prophecies that deal with the times of the Gentile and the abomination of desolation. So there's much to Daniel 11's prophecy, but we're going to focus on verse 21 to 45. And we're going to read here the vision of Antiochus and the Antichrist. Antiochus and the Antichrist. Verse 21, Daniel writes, In his place a despicable person will arise, 
on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Jump down a few verses. At the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim, that's Rome, will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. He will come back and show regard for those who forsake, forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Let's jump down a few verses. Then this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the god of his fathers or for the desire of a woman nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above all of them. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stone, and treasure. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Jump a few more verses. He will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and foremost of the sons of Ammon. A few more verses later. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. The prophecy of Antiochus and the Antichrist demonstrates God's sovereign control over the Gentile nations. So we have four prophecies, or five prophecies rather, all dealing with the fullness of the Gentiles. Gentile empires. We see them from humanity's standpoint. We see them from God's standpoint. We see them from Israel's standpoint. We see God's plan to end Gentile domination. And we see His sovereign control over the Gentile nations. If you were to take the time and read all through Daniel 11 through 12, you will see that every succeeding king leading up to Antiochus was prophesied by Daniel in chapter 11 with exacting detail. Now, let's bring these five prophecies together. The gold head of the pentametal man and the lion of the four great beasts depicts the Babylonian Empire. 629 to 539 B.C. The lion with eagle wings represents Babylon's majesty and ferocity like a lion, as well as its power and swiftness like the eagle. The Babylonian Empire went forth conquering all the surrounding nations. But the plucking of the lion's wing foretells Babylon's fall. Its lion heart is replaced with a weak heart, foretelling Belshazzar reigning in the place of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. In 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. The silver chest and arms of the pentametal man and the bear of the four great beasts and the ram from the two-horned ram and the male goat depict the Medo-Persian Empire, 539 to 331 B.C. 
The bear had one paw lifted up. The ram had two horns, one longer than the other, foretelling Persia's rebellion and conquering of Media in 550 B.C. The three ribs in the bear's mouth foretell the destruction, Persia's destruction of the chief cities of Babylon, uh, Ecbatana, and Barsippa in 539 B.C. The bear is commanded to arise up and devour much flesh, foretelling the extreme cruelties of the Persian Empire as it conquered. It pushed westward, northward, and southward. Guess what? Assyria, Babylonia, and Asia Minor are westward of Israel. Armenia and the Caspian Sea region are north of Israel. Egypt and Ethiopia are south of Israel. And all of those countries fell to the Persian Empire. The brass thighs on the pentametal man, the four-headed, four-winged leopard of the great four beast, and the male goat and little horn of the two-horned ram and male goat depict the Grecian Empire. 331 B.C. to 63 B.C. Greece is surrounded by a sea called the Aegean Sea. Aegean means goat, the goat sea. What was the empire depicted as? A goat. Alexander the Great, the first uh, leader of the Grecian Empire, named his son Aegis, meaning son of a goat. The leopard with four wings denotes Alexander's swift conquest. He subdued all the Asiatic kingdoms in the West by 336 B.C. and then by 331 B.C. had taken control of the entire Persian Empire. But his glory was short-lived. He died at age 33 in 323 B.C. The four heads of the leopard and the four horns of the goat are the fourfold division of Alexander's kingdom among his generals after his death. General Seleucus, the king of the north, took Syria and Babylon. General Ptolemy, the king of the south, took Egypt, Petra, and Arabia. General Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. General Lysimachus took Thrace, Bithynia, and Asia Minor. Out of one of the four horns of the goat were the four generals. A small horn arose. And he arose out of the Seleucus Empire. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. The iron legs of the pentametal man. The dreadful and terrible beast of the four great beasts depict the Roman Empire. 63 B.C. to A.D. 476. Iron more robust than bronze, silver, and gold. And so the iron legs represent Roman, the Roman Empire being more robust than the preceding Gentile powers. The beast is dreadful and terrifying, demonstrating that the Roman Empire represents the worst parts of all the empires. And the two legs predict the division of the Roman Empire into two parts, the Eastern and Western Empire in A.D. 364. Then we have the vision of the iron and clay feet of the pentametal man and the ten horns of that dreaded great beast of the four great beasts. This is the final Gentile empire. The ten toes represent a tenfold division of that empire. The ten horns growing out of the beast underscore that that final Gentile empire is not a revival of the old Roman empire, but indeed a recasting of its continuing sphere of influence into a ten-nation confederacy. But then another little horn arises out of the ten. 
controlling the ten-nation confederacy. This little horn is going to overthrow three of those ten horns, three of those nations, to gain power. This is that future Gentile leader. This leader of the final Gentile empire is the beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist. And I'd like to take a moment before we continue in Daniel, and I want to give you a comparison of the little horn of Daniel 7, that little horn that takes out three of the ten, with the beast of Revelation 13. Notice in Daniel 7 that he, the beast, and ultimately the little horn, rises up out of the sea. In Revelation 13, the beast rises up out of the sea. In Revelation 7, the, the, the horn is attached to a beast that's a composite of a lion, bear, and leopard. The beast of Revelation 13 is a composite of a lion, bear, and leopard. The little horn of Daniel 7 is attached to a seven-headed beast. In Revelation, the beast has seven heads. In Daniel 7, the little horn is more powerful than all his fellows. In Revelation 13, the beast was given power over all. In chapter 7, that little horn made war with the saints. In chapter 13, the beast will make war with the saints. In chapter 7 of Daniel, the little horn will speak great words. In Revelation 13, the beast speaks great and blasphemous things. In Daniel 7, the little horn will reign for a time and times in a dividing of time, or three and a half years. The beast of Revelation will reign for 42 months, or three and one half years. Isn't it amazing when you put the old with the new, how prophecy becomes a little more clear. The stone of the pentametal man. The ancient of days mentioned in the four great beasts is the coming king and the kingdom of God. That stone cut without hands has divine origin and it is none other than the messianic king. The messianic king is going to come out of heaven. He is going to break and grind the metal, metal man into fine powdery dust. So much so, it's destruction that Gentile empires will be destroyed by the Son of Man, Jesus. He will crush them into such fine powder that no trace will remain. And then he'll establish his kingdom on earth like a great mountain. Following the destruction of that final great empire, the Ancient of Days, that's Yahweh, will sit upon his throne as a judge. That moment there depicts the great white throne judgment after the millennial kingdom. All unsaved individuals are going to be cast into the lake of fire at that judgment. And now we come to Daniel 11. Verse 21, the prophet focuses us on, the, on another small horn. There's two small horns, remember? There's the small horn that comes out of the goat, and there's the small horn that comes out of the great and dreadful beast. One is Antiochus Epiphanes, and the other is a future king called the Antichrist. Well, beginning in Daniel eleven twenty one, we have the small horn of the goat, Antiochus, referred to as Epiphanes, meaning the visible God. He declared himself God in the flesh. His enemies referred to him as Epimenes, a madman, because of his brutality. Verse 22 tells us of Daniel 11 that he's the prince of the covenant. You see, Antiochus entered into a covenant with Israel. In 172 B.C., he broke that covenant and replaced the high priest with one of his loyalists. But when he makes this covenant, it enters in, they enter into a time of tranquility. 
Verse 27 to 31 of Daniel 11, we saw how Antiochus, the king of the north, will war against Egypt, the king of the south. Israel caught in the middle. Antiochus, being defeated by Egypt, will become enraged at the Holy Covenant, that is, the Jewish people, in verse 30 of Daniel 11. He will desecrate the sanctuary, he will do away with sacrifice, and he sets up, verse 31 of Daniel 11, the abomination of desolation. That was fulfilled in 167 B.C. Antiochus came into the temple, and we'll talk about that later, but he desecrated the temple, and he committed the abomination of desolation. When we get to verse 36 through 39 of Daniel 11, it shifts to the little horn that grows out of the final great beast of Daniel 7. This little horn is the Antichrist. This king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He'll show no regard for the god of his father or for the desire of a woman, but instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his father did not know. Now, up to this point we've looked at the past, now we're looking at the future. We're looking at that ten-nation confederacy, and out of that ten-nation confederacy... There's going to be one that arises, one little horn. He's the Antichrist. He reigns during the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation. He is going to exalt himself by overthrowing three kingdoms within the confederacy. He's going to magnify himself for three and a half years. And then he's going to establish himself as God and speak against Yahweh. According to Daniel 7, he is described as having a mouth uttering great boast, indicating that he is a blasphemer. I want you to notice here that this final Gentile king, the Antichrist, will have no regard for the God of his fathers. Now that is an important statement in identifying the Antichrist. He might rise up out of the Gentile nations, but... He has Jewish ancestry. He's a Jew. Has to be a Jew. They're going to accept him as their Messiah. They're not going to accept a Gentile as their Messiah. Also, he has no regard for the desire of a woman. My friends, there's only one way to interpret that correctly. He's going to be a homosexual. The Antichrist will be a homosexual. And he will honor the god of fortresses, which implies and indicates that he will reign with military might. That's going to be his god, war. Now when Jesus preached his sermon about the end times, Israel is under Gentile oppression. They're currently occupied by the Roman Empire. The iron legs of the pentamental man. The dreadful, terrible beast of the great four beast. The disciples are fully aware where they are in God's plan of prophecy. They know there's only left one final empire and only seven final years of God's plan. And so hearing the temple's going to be destroyed, hearing the Messiah's going to die, they're curious as to the signs of the end when the Messiah will come, put down the Gentile king, and establish his kingdom. 
And so Matthew 24, verses 4 to 28, Jesus lays out the signs marking the final seven years. Those signs, beginning in verse 4, do not kick in until the tribulation. And friends, 1 Thessalonians is clear. The rapture of the church is an escape from the wrath to come. You and I will not live in the tribulation. We will not experience the tribulation. Because we're out of here. We're raptured. 1 Thessalonians 5, we will escape the wrath, the tribulation to come. So those people living in those days when they see all of these things, they know they're in the, first, they're in the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation's first three and a half years are revealed in verses 4 through 14. Verse 16 through 28 reveal the second three and a half years of the tribulation. But there's a critical event between the tribulation halves known as the abomination of desolation. There in verse 15. And the abomination of desolation is as much a who as a what. And so as we look at Matthew 24 verse 15 in our final moments, I want to take the time to look at the character behind the abomination of desolation and the character of the abomination of desolation. Verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The character behind the abomination of desolation. As in verses 4 through 14, the you there is prophetic. It's talking to those believers living in the tribulation. Obviously, we're not going to see the abomination of desolation of the tribulation from this standpoint. Okay? We'll be in heaven. We're raptured. But in an act of grace by God, the gospel is still going to be declared. And many people, praise God, many people will be saved, Jews and Gentiles, during the first half of the tribulation. See, he says, when you see, harao, pay attention. If you're living in the tribulation, pay attention when you see the abomination of desolation occur. The word abomination there denotes something foul or detestable. It's a Hebraism for an idolatrous affront to the true worship of God. That's how you define an abomination. An idolatrous affront to the true worship of God. Okay? Deuteronomy 29.17 says you've seen their abominations. Their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold. Now this abomination, this detestable thing, this idolatrous thing causes destruction or desolation. And notice where it's happening. It's standing in the holy place. It's standing in the holy place. The holy place, the most sacred place of the temple, part of the temple. It is the holy of holies. It is the place where the Ark of the Covenant once rested. It is so sacred that it is cut off by a veil but from the rest of the temple. And only once a year could the high priest enter it on the Day of Atonement. So our question is, who or what detestable thing is standing in the holy of holies and what kind of destruction occurs? Listen, Jesus provides the answer right here. It was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, and Matthew adds, let the reader understand. 
In other words, we are urged by Matthew to go back and study the prophecies of Daniel if you want to know who and what the abomination is. You know, there's a great fact of truth here, folks. New covenant prophecies cannot be understood without understanding the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what Jesus is telling us. Now back in Daniel 9.27, I'll read it for you. You've read it, you've been there already, so we'll just read it. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Now this describes a person. He will, will come one, will come a person who makes desolate. That tells us that this person, or there is a character behind the abomination of desolation. Now in Daniel 11, he told us about the abomination of desolation caused by who? Antiochus Epiphanes. But Antiochus is a living prophecy of the Antichrist who is going to come in the future and who will also commit a similar abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation. He is the little horn of the great and dreadful beast. He is the prince who is to come. He is the Antichrist. Paul describes him this way in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Lawlessness, what is that? It is in a complete and utter disregard for God's law. The Antichrist will have a complete, utter disregard for God's law. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So if you're sinning, you're lawless, okay? That's the point. That he is a lawless man shows the Antichrist has no regard for God's law, and he's also called the son of perdition, which says that from eternity, this man called the Antichrist is doomed to eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Listen, his end is already determined. But there's a stark warning for us in 1 John 2, 8 and 4, 3. John the Apostle says the Antichrist is coming, but the spirit of Antichrist of which you've heard that is coming is now already in the world. The Antichrist may not be here, but his spirit is. And what is the spirit of Antichrist? It is the spirit of lawlessness. This spirit of lawlessness, this mindset of lawlessness is going to culminate in the tribulation with the revelation of the Antichrist. But John warns us that it's already here. The Spirit's here. How many of you, friends, are influenced by a spirit of lawlessness? Not me. My friends, have you been deceived into thinking that God's law has been abolished? If so... You possess the spirit of lawlessness or the spirit of Antichrist. If you believe that you can freely engage in sin and disobedience to God, you, my friend, possess a spirit of lawlessness, a spirit of Antichrist. And my friend, if that describes you, if you're reveling in sin and disobedience, if you think that Jesus came and abolished God's law, then my friend, you are behaving like an antichrist. You are acting like the lawless one. And you need to repent and immediately, right now, stop what you're doing and forsake your wickedness before God's judgment falls on you. Do not be an abomination before a holy God. Again, verse 15. Let's consider not just the character behind it, but let's look at the character of the abomination. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. 
Now we covered Daniel 11. In 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes entered into a covenant with Israel, then broke the covenant and committed five acts of abomination that desolated the temple. Number one, he erected a statue of Jupiter in the Holy of Holies. He ordered a sacrifice of pigs upon the brazen altar. He turned the temple into a brothel. He abolished God's law and he outlawed the observance of the Sabbath and the Feast of God, the Lord's Feast. But that is just a foreshadowing, my friends, of the future abomination of desolation foretold in Daniel 9.27 that the Antichrist will commit. By the way, did you catch what is an abomination? Abolishing God's law, outlawing the Sabbath and the Lord's Feast. God called that an abomination. Daniel reveals that the Antichrist will also make a covenant with Israel, a seven-year covenant, and after three and a half years, he's going to break that covenant and cause the abomination of desolation. Verse 25 of Daniel 7 tells us the sum of the abomination. It says the Antichrist will make alteration in times and in law. The word times there is a Persian loan word referring to the appointed times. Leviticus 23 verse 4 says, The Lord's feast are the appointed times of the Lord. He's going to alter, He's going to change the feast of the Lord. Then He's also going to make alterations to the law. And the word law there, dot, is another Persian loan, loan, loan word referring to the Torah, to God's law. He's going to change God's law and He's changing the feast. So much so that he's going to outlaw them, make them illegal. Daniel 9.27 says that he's going, to, he's going to end sacrifice and grain offerings. The word sacrifice there is a unique term referring to the Passover sacrifice. Grain offerings refers to the first fruit and Pentecost offerings. He's stopping, he's putting an end to the Lord's feast. Why? Because the Lord's feast point to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. He wants to remove anything pointing to the true Messiah. Yahweh declares in, Daniel, in Deuteronomy 12.32, listen carefully. Whatever I command you, you be careful to do. Do not add to, do not take away from it. Anyone who changes God's feast or God's law is an abomination. You are a detestable thing that wreaks devastation before a holy God. Wow. That's serious, isn't it? 1 John 2.18 John says, You have heard Antichrist is coming, but even now, many Antichrists have appeared. John's telling us that presently the church is infected with a spirit of Antichrist which is evidenced by the disregard for God's law and His feast. We just disregard them. We have no time for them. We look away from them. Now certainly there are aspects of the law we can't do today. There are certainly aspects of the feast that we're not responsible for today because the conditions have changed and the circumstances don't allow but we certainly can take the time to look back at them and acknowledge them and see how they point us to our Savior Jesus Christ in His first and second coming. You know, there would be a whole less lot of misunderstanding about His first and second comings if we understood the first and second phase of His feast. But we're infected with the spirit of Antichrist in the church today. Daniel 9.27 says, On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Here's one of those problems in Scripture. You read that and you say, I don't understand that. And I agree, it's difficult. So what do you do? 
when you don't when you read something you don't understand. That's right. Now some of you are brave. You call the pastor. Pastor, what does this mean? I'm happy to sit down and explain it. But the 99% of us, we read it, we skip it. Let me tell you something. The word wing here was translated by the Septuagint writers with the Hebrew term kanop, which is, uh, or with the Greek term for kanop, meaning temple, hiran. Literally, here's how it could be rendered. There shall be in the temple a desolating sacrilege. Wow. Okay. So he's not only going to forbid God's law, he's not going to only outlaw the feast, but he's also going to do something in the temple. He's going to desecrate the temple. How? For 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He is going to take his seat in the temple. He's going to set his thro- temple in, or throne in the temple of God and display himself as God. Again, what does Jesus say? When you see the abomination of desolation doing what? Standing in the holy place. He's going to stand in the holy of holies. He's going to declare himself to be God. He's going to demand to be worshipped by the people. And my friends, listen, that's not all. Just like Antiochus erected a statue of Jupiter, the Antichrist erects a statue of himself. Revelation 13 to 14. They're going to erect an image to the beast. And the image of the beast is to be worshipped. And it will cause as many as who do not worship that image to be killed. I praise God we're not going to see this abomination of desolation. But my friends, we should be much aware today of things that God deems as abominations. We've touched on some of them already. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.13, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? Folks, you and I, believer, we are the temple of God right now on earth. God's Spirit is dwelling within this temple. We need to recognize that. You and I, we need to recognize our body is God's temple. And when you and I dishonor our body, God's temple, by sinning, Guess what we're doing? We are committing an abomination of desolation. We are desecrating what God has deemed sacred. That should be terrifying to all of us. That we could be just as guilty as Antiochus and the Antichrist. We could be doing the very same thing. Remember, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. That spirit of lawlessness is already at work. Ezekiel 11.21 states, But as for those whose hearts go after detestable things and abominations, God says, I'm going to bring their conduct down on their heads. God's judgment is coming, friend. And so I challenge you, heed this warning. Repent of the abominations. Repent of those things that have desecrated this temple, God's temple. Forsake those things. And begin restoring yourself to holiness. And pray for God to come and withhold His hand of judgment upon you. And instead, extend His hand of peace. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come into Your presence with great trembling. Because Lord, we come as abominations. We have sinned. We have not walked according to Your ways. And we have done that with this body, your temple. 
So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us. Father, each one here, Lord, as we're each praying our own prayers before you, our own sins coming to our own minds, our own abominations, I thank you for grace. I thank you for Christ's work of salvation. I thank you, Lord, that what he did on the cross of Calvary means that, Lord, your hand of judgment against our abominations can be withheld. That, Father God, you can restore us, you can cleanse our temple, and you can make us holy once again. Oh, God, Father, in your grace and mercy, do that for us. Rescue us from ourselves. Father, I pray that we'll go forth today and walk in newness of life. Walk under the control of the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. And living with this temple in a way that honors and glorifies you. We thank and praise you that you've chosen to inhabit us as your temple. And we commit ourselves, Lord, to strive to be holy as you are holy. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.